episode number 30 of the Media Narrative Podcast, back after a few weeks of silence. Sorry about that. I'm Rob Hoschild. This is a show featuring media makers, their stories, and their process. I think a lot of people forget that bands and visual artists and painters and et cetera, et cetera, are businesses. They are mom and pops. They are entrepreneurs just the same way that that food truck on the corner is, you know, and so everyone's trying to make their mark and trying to make a little rent money and and all of that. And I think that's overall what the book is really about, is about Bostonians um, expressing themselves sometimes poetically and deeply artistically. Author, journalist, and historian Brian Coleman is one of the foremost chroniclers of hip-hop music. But after three books of interviews and liner notes focusing on great rap albums, Coleman took a left turn with his latest book, Buy Me Boston. It's a collection of about 400 advertisements, flyers, and other visuals produced around Boston in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And it tells a story of an American city that, like many other places in the country at the time, was bursting with artists and small businesses desperate to exist and connect with community. But you also get a sense of the struggles of the time, like the battle against racism. I spent some time talking about all of that with Brian Coleman at his home, where I saw his extensive archives and collections of music, video, publications, and other historical documents. During our conversation, Brian Coleman analyzes several ads in the book, some of which are really hilarious. He talks about his approach to interviewing music greats, and also has some advice for novice interviewers and archivists. As we begin, Coleman is talking about how his interest in hip-hop research connected with a quest to know more about a whole range of subjects. I became a big hip-hop fan starting in the late 80s, and that opened up this whole extra interesting world of you would hear a song, and then there was the sample in the song. So it was find out what the sample was because that wasn't always easy and it wasn't always obvious. And then also, huh, like who, okay. So who's cool in the gang? Like Mm -hmm. what, what is that? And, and uh, so, oh wow. So they go, their first albums were like late sixties, early seventies. And let me check those out. So it kind of sends you down this, this other wormhole of, in in a beautiful way of, of checking out. And then as you go along, as you move along the corridors of this, trench that you're in with yeah. all this knowledge and all this music, other things pop out at you. So, yeah. so uh, yeah, so I guess it does go back a long way for me wanting mm-hmm. to dive beneath the se- the surface of anything that I, that I like, anything that grabs yeah. my attention, I latch onto it and kind of a- automatically want to dive yeah. straight down and find out more about that thing, that artist, that mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but also where that came from along the continuum of who were they influenced by and things like that. Yeah, and I imagine one thing we'll get into as we talk more about this is all these wormholes and rabbit holes and the way you've made connections between various things because I would think that's where you know things really take off in your mind. And you start to start to see what's really happening. Um, so. Let's talk about the book that's right in front of us, the thing yep. that came out most recently. This is your fourth book, right? Uh, yes. So, well, fourth book about music, or, or actually, this isn't no, a book about fourth music. book. 
This is I mean, your fourth I, book. I did kind of a mini book that it's yeah. not really necessarily. We're not, we're not counting that one. Okay. Yeah, but um, it is my fourth book. It's the third one that I've self-published too, yep. which is uh, I'm proud about. Um, this one is the first one that's not a music book purely. I mean, obviously right. there's, uh, as I kind of say in the introduction, uh, I'm a music guy. I'm a music fiend in that I can't fight that. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but what I tried to do purposely is not make this a music book because yeah. I could have easily done one just about flyers for clubs and yeah. uh, bands and things like that. But I went out of my way to make sure to present uh, a broader view of what Boston was about right. uh, in the late 20th century. Um, so what we have here is a book, a paperback book with about 400 ads in it. Is that about yep. the number? Yep. About 400 ads. And it is Boston pulled out of certain publications in Boston in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Yep. And, uh, you know, you it, it is definitely... A lot of fun to read through this when you were in Boston during some of this time. I was here starting in the mid '80s, uh, but I think there's a lot you learn about uh, about the country at that time mm-hmm. as well, yep. um, because it just sort of reflects what was happening at that time. So this this book is called "Buy Me Boston." How did this project start? Have you always been interested in advertisements like this? How did you make the choices? So I wonder if you could just kind of talk about how this all got rolling. I mean, I guess uh, there was. There wasn't necessarily one kind of lightning strike moment, lightning bulb moment where where I was like, okay, uh, it, it kind of came in phases. Um, I think it really first started several years back. Uh, Kay Bourne, who was the arts writer for the Bay State Banner for many, many years, decades, um, going back to uh, the late 60s. Wow. Uh, she's amazing. And she was getting ready to... Uh, collect her archives and um, donate them to Emerson, where they are at now. And I would encourage everyone to contact Emerson and mm-hmm. say you want to see them, uh, because I don't think they're 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 still starting to process them. But mm-hmm. um, I'm hoping it, it starts moving quickly uh, or more quickly because it's incredible stuff that, mm-hmm. that it would just blow people's minds um, to see in person or online or however they deal with it. So. So I basically just kind of offered to help Kay with, I knew her a little bit and um, I don't even remember exactly. I think I wanted to talk to her. Oh, I think I originally I wanted to talk to her because I was doing a bunch of research about WILD, Mm -hmm. um, the AM uh, African-American R&B news uh, community station. Here in Boston. Here in Boston. Um, now defunct. Now defunct. Uh, now is, I think, a Chinese language mm-hmm. news and talk station, 1090. Um, so I think I wanted to talk to her about that um, specifically because she had obviously been around during that era. I was doing some research about the station. And then we got to talking and she was talking about her archive. And I just said, you know, if you need help, I'm happy to. I think it's fascinating. It would be but truly amazing for me just to be able to see some of this yeah. and if I can help you with what you're doing. So I started by just kind of helping her going over to her house and helping her organize some of her stuff. And along the way, I was I would uh, kind of check things out and say, hey, do you mind if I uh, scan this uh, just just to have it? Yeah. Um, and so, so that's one thing that started it, I guess, in motion. And then the second part was uh, David Bieber, who uh, I also started getting to know around that time, maybe three or four years ago. 
Um, I, I believe, I, I'm guessing Chris Farone is the one who introduced us. Um, ah, Chris Farone yeah. has been on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Chris is amazing yeah. and an old a pal of mine. And mm-hmm. so he knew Bieber from the Phoenix days because okay. uh, David was there, was kind of uh, Stephen Mendich's right hand over there at the Phoenix and mm-hmm. FNX. So, so I started to get to know David a little bit and started to realize what his archive was all about. And his archive is just mind-blowingly insane. Um, Can you so, give me a sense of what's in there in a nutshell? Whew, and I and mean, how big it is. You said we, we were down in your basement, which has thousands of uh, LPs in there, vinyl LPs and lots of other stuff. And you said he's got 30 times that space in yeah, storage. Yeah, at least. It's uh, it's, I mean, it's it's... It's vast. It's, yeah. it's, I don't even know how to describe it. I don't know. Heinz okay. Convention Center. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's large and it has, uh, he's a music guy like myself, but he goes way, way beyond that. So there are, uh, political posters going back to the seventies, wow. probably sixties. He's got tons of movie posters, Man. lots of music, yeah. both, um, I mean, literally eight tracks, vinyl, seven inches, everything reel-to-reels. I found some reel-to-reels the other day when I was just rooting around in there. They were the radio promos uh, for Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, man. You know, that on those mini reel-to-reels. And that, I mean, it's it's truly incredible. And And it's not just Boston. There's a definite... Boston leaned to it for right. sure, uh, for obvious reasons, because he was in Boston when he was uh, amassing most of it. Uh, but it, it goes beyond that. He has village voices from the late 60s, early 70s, cool. um, every Rolling Stone ever put out, yeah. and um, the radio and records, and, and kind of some of these trade publications, mm. comic books, photos, uh, tons and tons and tons of photos. So um, you started looking through all of this stuff after you'd seen this other archive, Kate yes. Bourne's archive, and then started to think like maybe this is stuff that needs to be shared, or are you focused on the ads somewhere in that? So yeah, so I guess the sh- after that long intro, the short version then became um, I was going to do uh, the past books I've done have all been hip hop books. They've been in their own way historical, archival, mostly from the oral history perspective. Yeah, so it's absolutely. like classic hip hop records, um, kind of I call them invisible liner notes, like liner notes for hip hop records done uh, 20, 30 years later. So right. going back with the people who made those. Public Enemy or Run DMC or whomever. Has anyone ever referred to you as the Studs Turkle of hip hop? <laughs> Because no, I've been called the Ken Burns of hip hop. Ken which, Burns. Well, you'll have to make some documentaries. I have better hair than him. Sure. <laughs> but I, the reason why I say that is because Studs Terkel wrote that book, Working, that was based mm-hmm. on all these interviews, oral history interviews. And when I look at your hip hop books, which, like you say, they're liner notes written years after the fact of classic hip hop albums, you have all these interviews directly with the people who made those records. So yep. they seem to unfold. It unfolds like an oral history of an album. So yep. that's why I think of you as. Studs Terkel, because you've you've interviewed so many people and have just, I mean, that's a whole piece of your archive, probably. Yeah. You might have these recordings of all these interviews. Oh, yeah, I have somewhere. all the tapes. I didn't show you the, all the tapes that no. I have. No, see, that's Cassette, another wormhole. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, but I guess that also um, goes back to what I was saying yeah. about how, so, for example, my theory with those books is you can like whatever album it is, De La Soul yeah. or The Roots. 
uh, and you can listen to it a hundred times, but that doesn't mean you really, you think you know so much about it, but mm. then once you realize, once you talk to anyone involved in it, you, it just kind of unfolds these layers of, you're just like, wow, oh my God, you know, you appreciate these songs so much more by knowing what the artists went through to make them and yeah. different kind of left turns that were taken, mm -hmm. um, and things like that. So that goes back to me going, finding something on the surface. So right. I like the far side passing me by, but it's like, oh, well, why don't I ask the guys who made it what went into making that song and yeah. how to, you know, and then, so then it becomes, uh, additionally beyond the selfish thing of me wanting to talk to these guys and ask them is sharing it and saying, you know, there's a lot of other people just like me who want to know this stuff. So, and by the way, Questlove wrote uh, a forward to at least one of these books. That's true. He did. And uh, said something like, I don't want to embarrass you. I think I have it here somewhere. Uh, we cut this part out here. Where was it? It's hard to embarrass me. Uh, <laughs> oh, he just basically, you know, it, in, in one of, in, in the forward he wrote to your book, uh, one of these hip hop books, I guess it was volume one of Check Your Check Head. Check the Technique. Yeah. Check the Technique. Mm -hmm. uh, volume one of Check the Technique, Questlove said something along the lines of all uh he has a bunch of liner note junkie buddies that have been reading uh your earlier book and dissecting it and like to get Questlove, uh one of the authorities on this kind of music to say something like that says a lot about the work you were doing yeah i mean we're we're all kind of as hip-hop nerds we're all kind of in this together you know and we're all his uh, podcast is amazing. You know, the, all the, the, the spelunking he does. I don't know his podcast. It's on What's Pandora, his? right? He does, and, and he goes way beyond uh, music stuff, to, okay. you know, because he can. Because yeah. people who I could never get yeah. on the horn to talk. Um, he's also a great writer, that guy. Uh, you know, Amir's, he's an amazing guy. He's yeah. a true Renaissance man. Um, and I love where he's at. I love yeah. what he's, uh, he's worked his way into this position of, of kind of power, uh, on his own terms. And now he's yeah. using it to do some really amazing stuff. Yeah. So it's great. Uh, he is, he's a great guy. So, so to circle back where you were, so you're just talking about, yeah, the books. So kind of like yeah. with the David Bieber and then Kay Bourne or vice versa. Um, I started to think like all this stuff is swirling around me and all these kind of cultural, uh, events and and whether that is an actual concert or whether it's a movement or whether it's a a location of a club or something like that or a scene, um, I started to think like how could I do, how could I tell a story but also not interfere with anything that they might be doing on their own with their own archive in the future. So. Mm -hmm. It occurred to me, I've always, I think even going way back in the, the beginning of the interview here, you said, have you always been interested in ads? And I have mm -hmm. always been interested in ads. Uh, television ads, most people gloss them over. but I, I certainly actually, tune them out. So I don't. Yeah. I watch them very yeah. intently, and I'm always very curious uh, as to their approach. Like when I was in college, for a while, I, was, I wanted to go into advertising, and I started to realize that... It was a very wear a suit and tie to work kind of thing <laughs> and not as creative and fun as, as my uh, immature self thought would be great. That I would just walk in and everyone would just let me wear shorts and like <laughs> hand me a bunch of money. So I, that didn't happen. So, uh, but, but I've always been interested in ads, um, television ads and, and print. And I think that the, 
I, so I, so I said, what if I did something with the ads? Because there's an article about whatever TT the Bears or um, the Western Front or this artist or that artist or Mission of Burma or something like that. Um, but what if I actually did constructed a narrative based on um, things that were not the either a photo or an article about them, because that would actually be kind of challenging mm -hmm. because that's in a lot of ways, people consider ads to be a distraction or a cutting room floor, or they just completely ignore them. But I actually find them really fascinating. And then the more I started paying attention to them, the more I really became fascinated by, for instance, if you look at the Boston after dark um, was uh, the arts publication before the Phoenix, uh, or before the Boston Phoenix. There was a Cambridge Phoenix. So this is early 70s? This is late 60s. Late 60s, okay. Starting in, I think, 66 or 67. And this was Minditch. Um, and this, uh, was it? Yeah. So anyways, um, Boston After Dark's in, like, say, 68, 69. Probably 69 was when they started becoming bigger uh, in volume and pages. Uh, the ads really started... Uh, becoming people were paying more attention to making the ads so they weren't just these very simple um kind of uh here's the info and take it or leave it like they'd be started because if you look at uh, tea party ads boston tea party the club mm -hmm. from that era a lot of them are uh you actually have to stare at them for a while until you realize what the text even says. Hmm. Like it's almost coded language. Wow. Um, and they can be very intricate. And uh, because, and this is kind of what this speaks to, whether you appreciate it or not, but back in that era, in the 60s, 70s especially, and even into the 80s, uh, there were less distractions. You mm -hmm. obviously didn't have... Facebook and Instagram and online Internet in general. So when you sat down with Boston after dark, that was, a that was an hour long process in your mm -hmm. week. That was something you did and you were very serious about. So you would kind of sit with that and let it soak in. And that was important. And I think that's reflected in how much care a lot of the times the ads were even a place like Tello's that became, um, less, of a kind of a fashion forward kind of place back mm -hmm. then had really interesting ads that were very kind of cutting edge, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and there are of course some that were just basic and some that were kind of blocks of, of information. But yeah. um, so things like that, I was, I was definitely started to think even deeper about mm -hmm. advertising and, and different places. Um, but also you can look at ads for clubs and see, I have an ad that, uh, is not even, is not in the first book. Cause I've been going pretty crazy since then, um, of Tom Waits opening for someone at Passine. Oh, what? Uh, oh and probably, God. I don't know, 72, 73. Holy moly. So things like that, you're just like, huh, that's pretty <laughs> cool. Uh, there's a Bruce Springsteen ad in the book that I slid in at the last second, um, of him playing at Oliver's, which, right. Most, I think they're kind of back using Oliver's, but that's basically in the cask and flagon. So this is a bar right by Fenway right by Park. Fenway Park. Yeah. So you can imagine that's not a huge room down no. there, and that was uh, pretty. Must have been a pretty cool show yeah. to see. Nineteen seventy-three, I think that one was. Yeah. yeah. So 
So then you start to get that aspect of it. Or there's like a Who show in there from 69, yeah. I think. And, you know, at BU and the tickets were like 250 or yeah. something like that. Hendrix show in 1968 was in the book. You had uh, also the Ramones and the Talking Heads at the yep. Orpheum yep. in 77. And then uh, a big one was that Amandla concert. You had an Amandla concert, yeah. ad, which is that huge concert at Harvard Stadium with Bob Marley and Patti LaBelle. And Eddie Palmieri. And Eddie Palmieri, the piano player. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so so you start to uncover all this stuff. I mean, and for me, it's it's extra interesting because I was, you know, five years old, yeah. seven years old, nine years old. So I wasn't going to any of these concerts. Mm-hmm. Um, that that being said, if you look on the cover, it says that I curated the book. Right. So I'm not the authority. I'm not the end all be all. I am kind of a conduit to for all these different. Uh, sources and some of them are archives. Some of them are just like Wayne Valdez uh, is an amazing guy. He goes back to the um, uh, Hoodoo Barbecue mm-hmm. back at the Rat in the late seventies, early eighties, and um, had his own store, Store Fifty Four, for mm-hmm. many years. Um, so I just, hey Wayne, I'm coming over. Can I borrow some flyers and stuff? Yeah, sure, come on over. So, but they're all. It's it's not like they're weighted any different to mm-hmm. me. I mean, everyone can have interesting stuff. Right. Uh, some of it's more organized than others, mm-hmm. uh, but I kind of so so it's just it's my singular lens of looking mm-hmm. through this era because anyone else could have looked at the exact same publications I looked at and come up with a completely different book. And I think right. that's kind of the beauty of it is yeah. that. Um, and certainly for me, I never try and present myself as the authority, but I can kind of learn more about this stuff. So mm-hmm. if it's, I've obviously asked David Bieber multiple times about the Tea Party and what was BCN like in those early days. And um, so so that is something that I love is, mm-hmm. is having this network uh, also of information. And, and I try not to keep it to myself. I try and share it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of the point of it is not to keep it all within myself or just tell a couple people about yeah. it, but to share it. Because I think as the book has proven, um, there is an appetite for this, for this kind of nostalgia. And it's not just cheap nostalgia. It's not just, um, it, it, it kind of draws you in with things like, okay, with the Ramones show or Hendrix, but then it'll present something a lot deeper, you know, mm-hmm. like some, uh, like the celebrity awards that were, um, Tony Rose and Yvonne um, Rose did these awards in the early 80s that was chiefly about the African-American arts community in mm-hmm. Boston. Um, and so I had access to a lot of that stuff, and mm-hmm. I, uh, I want to feature that just as much, and right. honestly, even more, because I think a lot of that stuff has generally been forgotten, mm-hmm. and it was hugely important. Um, at the time. So, so that's kind of what it's about is trying to find some yeah. balance and maybe it's a spoonful of sugar that, yeah. okay, I'll draw you in by this crazy show, this punk show that yeah. happened, but you're going to also be, because the other thing, as you probably noticed, or maybe you didn't, but I think most people do is there's no actual structure to the no. book. There's no, no order to I it. I noticed that. Yes. And that's on purpose yeah. because you don't know what's coming next. So yeah, you so- can't flip to the movie section. 
basically exactly there there's a couple of uh front there's a couple of pages of front matter and then there's a page or two at the end you have a page from your designer at the end and then it's you know 300 some odd pages i think or 200 yep. some odd pages of just ads on a page with the date mm-hmm. and the source and that's it so so there's no structure but you did put them in an order so no there's so what you just just sort of started putting things okay this is you know, I mean, they're in it. They're technically in an order. So where did that? There's come an from? index. There's an. Index. I did an index. Okay. That was my way of making it up to people who might be upset by the fact that it's not a linear narrative. It's not chronological. Right. It's not by subject matter. Um, it was kind of a feel thing, you know. Yeah. I just kind of like went. Um, I didn't want to put any one type of thing. Like that one's a perfect. The one you just pulled Mitch. up. This I laughed out loud when I saw this one. This is a like. Uh, can you describe this? This Mitch thing. So this was Mitch, the bouncer, a well-known, uh, very well-dressed bouncer from the Rat in right. the seventies and eighties. Um, Bearded was, dude. So the noise uh, in a, an amazing fanzine from Boston in the eighties. Uh, they did sh- t-shirts like Mitch shirts. Yeah. Um, so there's an ad for that. Um, and then on the opposite page is a very serious. Uh, MLK holiday thing from 1988 mm-hmm. uh, with the picture of Martin Luther King. So, so that kind of juxtaposition is, yeah. you know, I think that sums things yeah. up a little bit in that um, there's a lot of serious stuff in the book, but it doesn't take itself too seriously. Right. Not that Mitch is anything to laugh at. I mean, mm-hmm. he was an important guy. He was actually a musician. I actually have a, an article um, where Neil uh, Neil Sugarman from Daptone Records and the Dap Kings is quoted because Mitch was a saxophonist oh, wow. and he used to kind of play here and there. And Neil is is quoted in it, which is kind of funny. That's impressive. Um, so, anyways, it, it, the 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 book is it's meant to. I don't know. I guess I guess I did it on purpose because I thought I think a lot of books are done with this very serious approach and mm-hmm. very academic and. Mm-hmm. So if I mention the paradise, I should write a whole page about yeah. what the paradise was. And it's like, no, that's this is a fanzine, yeah. and it's uh, maybe on an elevated level. Mostly, your, your, your book is a fanzine. My book, saying. I considered to be that's the way I looked at it at first okay. was a fanzine, mm-hmm. um, and I, you know, I still think it is at its core right. um, because um, it's it is kind of artsy in mm-hmm. its own weird way, mm-hmm. but and and also the fact that I don't really know what I'm doing. So yeah. I can't do a serious book, so I might as well not attempt it. So let me just do something that's kind of fun. Right. Um, but also there's, uh, it's not empty calories, you know, no. there's some heft to it. Oh yeah. And when you talk about some of these organizations that were doing things to bring together, to lift up the African-American community in Boston, in the late sixties and early seventies, that's a big deal because the racial climate in Boston was very fraught. It still is in many ways. Yep. Um, but at that time, particularly so. So it's really interesting to see some of that in there and to see artists like Prince Charles Alexander with some of his original ads. He's now a teacher at Berkeley that we both have known for years. I love Uh, Prince Charles. He's a great guy and great musician and great producer. Um, So many questions. Um, But, you know, one thing in terms of that, uh, one thing I noticed um, in getting across certain messages, I immediately thought of Mad Men when I came across an ad on page 44. Uh, this is one of those little blocky ads that doesn't really um, look like anything. Mm-hmm. Are you an exceptional gal <laughs> Yeah, is what this thing reads. And it's basically uh, um, 
the a first temp agency, right? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it actually doesn't say that it's a temp agency. It says the guy is Mr. Clifford, but it says, we are seeking a bright, attractive young woman who has all the secretarial skills and the willingness to earn every, uh, over $10,000 a year. And I just thought that was, wow, they're just putting that right out there, attractive. But it was 1960-something, so. Yeah, I found another one more recently that was even kind of funnier. It was this company... I forget which company it was. They were based in Cambridge, and it was kind of them trying to be women's lib, but mm. it just went very wrong very quickly, where it was like, um, you know, we love women at this company. You know, we want you to work here, and we have some of the best secretarial jobs you'll ever get. You know, so it was kind of like, yeah. oh, yeah. You kind of believe um, that. But yeah, but it, it was kind of reflects yet again. Uh, you talk about it reflects the the time, and yeah. so that was yeah. the both locally, nationally, mm-hmm. where these companies started to realize that oh, that you know this women's lib thing is a, is a thing. So yeah. let's try and do. And obviously they were incapable, mm-hmm. um, probably because the ad people and the HR people were all men, so that wasn't yeah. really helping. Yeah. Um, but so so it is interesting that for me uh, looking at that. That you, on one level you could be like, "Wow, what a bunch of idiots!" And then on another, saying, "Well, th- they were trying. Uh, obviously, they failed miserably, but right. at least maybe at least they were trying." But, right. You know. So it's it, but but more maybe that opens up another debate. You know. Yeah. So who knows? So. And one thing I know you've said about this this work that you've been doing with the advertisements um, is that an ad is, if I'm getting the quote right, the pure voice of a business, I believe yeah. is what you said. So that to me, that example is an indication of that. Many, many of these are examples of that. So why is that so interesting to you? Well, because, so if you see yet again, like let's say um, if the Boston Globe or the Phoenix back in the day was doing a review of a show or a restaurant, mm-hmm. that's obviously uh, the writer's opinion. That's mediated. Um, so it kind of gives you some facts. Uh, mm-hmm. This is where the restaurant is located. This is, it serves Middle Eastern food and it's open on, not open on Sundays. Yeah. And then everything after that is, this was the food I got was overdone and, and this, that, and, or it was delicious and the greatest thing ever and uh, that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. So that's mediated and depending uh, can be very subjective. So, right. Um, Whereas an ad, and and so like somewhere in the middle is where the truth is, right? So then you can have an ad from uh, a certain, like there's a Grendel's Den ad in the book. So that's- It's a restaurant in Cambridge. Yeah, which is gone. Or was, yeah. Yeah, it's gone, I think. But, um, you know, and I I love Grendel's. That was a great place. And it's certainly an institution. Anyone who- went to Harvard or went to Harvard Square, knows mm-hmm. Grendel. So, uh, but that was kind of a comical ad. It was like a kind of a, a cartoon drawing of yeah. this waiter. Uh, and that's the way they wanted to portray themselves right. is not a stodgy, stuffy place, but it's fun. And, oh, this is um, because, and, and so they took time. They hired someone to draw that and paid someone, uh, yeah. hopefully paid someone um to draw that, and then that was the way they wanted to represent themselves. If uh, the Globe was going to do an article, and they said, "Well, how about if we just draw you a cartoon and you just run that?" Like, I don't think that would go over very right. well. Yeah. So, 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 somewhere in the middle there is where, uh, and so that's why you have to kind of process everything if you yeah. care enough to process it. Um, and yet again, some ads like the Western Front, mm-hmm. as amazing of a club as that was, their ads were nothing special at all. Because right. a lot of times, too, you have to keep in mind that the uh, the Phoenix or 
um, the real paper, wherever those were being run, were the ones who actually did the ad. Because mm-hmm. you could either have them do it yeah. or provide your own copy and art and everything like that. Right. Some people, so maybe Marvin from the Western Front, either didn't care or was just way too busy to be like, well, I don't, I don't have time to mm-hmm. hire a photographer and someone to draw this great illustration. Right. And just here's who's playing on Thursday. Just shut up and run it. You know, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. So mm-hmm. I don't know that that fact. If, if next time, if I see him, I'll I could ask him. Um, and then other clubs went out of their way, like the In Square Men's Bar. Mm-hmm. Um, always had these really interesting ads uh, where they would have someone draw the entire month's calendar and have all these oh, yeah. drawings of people playing and for all that. thirty days of the month. There'd be like a little picture for each individual performer. I so thought that they was really cool. were yeah. like, "No, we don't want a boring ad. We're right. the In Square Men's Bar, and we yeah. think we're more interesting than that." And so let that other club do what they want. Let the paradise run a a boring ad. We're going to be cool. So they did. Well, it attracts people's attention. And two of the other ads that stood out for me among the many that did were also cartoon ish or graphic novels, whatever the term is Mm. to use these days. Looking back, one was for WCAS, a radio station in Cambridge that plays played like folk music and things like that. And, and I thought that was really was cool. also a gospel R&B station for a while in the early 80s. Kind of eclectic. They remind me a little bit of what we say at WUMB, actually. Sure. Um, but uh, I was really surprised by the fact that at Roxbury Community College, they created sort of a graphic comic portrayal or ad for a media literacy course. I thought yeah. that was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I where, mean what are your thoughts on, well, on that if, one? Unless I'm mistaken, that was actually drawn by one of Boston's most legendary artists uh, of the 20th century, oh, Alan right? Rohan Crite. Oh, no kidding. Um, does it say on there? Uh, here it is here. I am almost... A.R. Crite. Wow. So Roxbury Community College, which is which is a uh, you know not exactly as well healed as some of the other schools around here, paid an artist to create this. That was actually a flyer. Um, not as I don't know. Maybe they ran that as an. What does it say on the? It's, it just says course flyer. Yeah. It just says course so that flyer, was yeah. Kay Bourne in her collection had three or four different um, ones that Alan had drawn. I mean, that's kind of amazing. I mean, yeah. if you, if you, I would encourage anyone to look up Alan Rohan Crite, um, hugely important uh, African-American uh, visual artist, painter from uh, starting in the mid 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing I love most about him is that as I, and, and keep in mind, like I didn't know who that even was when I started this whole journey and started to dive into K-Born's archive. And I started to see some of this stuff and be like, wow, this is amazing. Because what Alan would do is he would, um, and yet again, I hope that people sometime very soon get to really start looking at at Kay's uh, archive at at Emerson because it's absolutely stunning stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, He would draw, he was a very well-known artist. He has his stuff, you know, in museums around the world. Um, He would, if someone had, I saw a baptismal uh, program for someone who was maybe related to him, maybe it was just someone he knew, someone's kid, a friend of his. He drew this amazing, wow. gorgeous uh, 
you know, a bap- program for their baptism, a four page thing. Wow. And Kay had it. And I was just like, oh my yeah. God. So, and it's, and it's amazing. It's beautiful because he was very much, if someone asked him to do something and he was capable of doing it, it wasn't like, well, how much are you going to pay me? Right. It was kind of like, sure, let yeah. me know. There are other, um, he would do shows at like the piano factory, um, where clearly he was way above that from a, a level of his, his own reputation, but mm-hmm. that didn't, he wasn't stuck up in that way. He, yeah. if that would help other younger artists who were part of that, mm-hmm. then he was there or he would draw the flyer or whatever. So, so that's a good example of, and I agree that yeah. it is an amazing thing to yeah, see. It really is. Um, especially when you know that that's him, because it's not even, it's very small. If you, it's hard to even find his signature, his signature yeah, on there, yeah. but I saw it and was like, wow, that's incredible. Earlier, we looked at some videos down in your, uh, or up in your office. Yes. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about those. We saw some amazing stuff, uh, some music, live music performances from uh, as far back as the 60s and 70s. So is that material that you also uncovered during this process and now it's coming out in a different way? Yeah. So I have an event on April 11th on Thursday at the Coolidge Corner um, Theater. So a book event. Brookline, Brookline, Massachusetts. Indeed. So uh, in the upstairs, Movie House 2, which will be a lot of fun on the big screen upstairs there. Some of it will be directly related, but not all of it. So I have uh, local access shows um, from the 70s, 80s, mostly goofy, funny, weird stuff. Yeah. Um, I have news programs and news footage. I have a lot of live stuff. And it has Mm -hmm. come as I'm... uh, kind of parallel pathing. So now when I ask someone, hey, do you have old newspapers and flyers? I say, do you have any old VHS tapes? Mm -hmm. And they're like, yeah, I guess I have some of those. I'm like, give me those. So, um, and I have a way now I can, it's not super pro level stuff, but I think it's good enough that I can digitize stuff at my house that it'll be fuzzy a little bit up on the screen, but Mm -hmm. it's clear and you can hear it well enough. And I think it's just fun. I, I mean, some of it's never been seen, or if it has been seen, it hasn't been seen in decades. Um, some of it is thing are, are things that people may have seen before, or they're they're on YouTube. But mm-hmm. my concept of what and it's called the Buy Me Boston Video Loft, mm-hmm. which is, if you remember, is is a uh, a tribute to another local program going back to the eighties. That was on channel uh, 38. Called the 68. Video Loft. The Movie Loft. The Movie Loft. That's right. Yeah. I might ask you to take this part out so I don't get in trouble, but <laughs> I think I'm safe. Um, so so it's kind of uh, a way that you, you can look at this stuff on YouTube, but when you're looking at it on YouTube, you're probably distracted by something else or you're like, oh man, my boss is coming. I better not you know, watch this for too long. Right. Or... Um, you're seeing it on your stupid little smartphone. So seeing it on a big screen in a theater, there's nothing like that. Mm -hmm. And in the same way that seeing a print publication versus looking at it online, there's no real, uh, there's no way to compare the two. So Mm -hmm. if you're given the choice, wouldn't you rather see all this stuff on a huge screen loud? And the answer I hope is yes, hell yes. And so come on down because my my hope is that I can do three or four of these a year mm-hmm. at different venues, anywhere with a big screen. I'll I'll show up with my thumb drive of, yeah. of crazy wacky videos. I mean, I have all these commercials, mm-hmm. uh, and it's all Boston stuff. Yeah. Um, so so it's kind of the video representation 
of the book, it's not necessarily a one-to-one correlation. Like Mm -hmm. it it doesn't all ladder back to certain ads, but it certainly ladders back to aspects of the book, whether Mm -hmm. it was an era or a scene. I mean, there's a lot of my favorite thing, as you may have gleaned from looking through the book, or certainly one of my favorite things is hair salon ads. Oh, yeah, yeah. They are always good for... You could pretty much look at a hair salon ad and say, okay, yeah, that's definitely early 70s or right. mid 80s. Um, yeah, now, is it the the shape of the hair that makes you say that? What was it? Uh, that- you just know, dude. Yeah. You just know. Here's one that says, get your hair cropped, not chopped. And then below the name of the salon, John Mitchell's Croppers, it says, hair has no sex. It was another one of those. But it's awesome. It's this drawing, it's this graphic yeah. of these two people and their hair is like joined together in yeah. this huge clump. Yeah. Um, yeah, so stuff like like that's awesome. Yeah, uh, that is legitimately. I'd put if I had that poster, I'd put it up on my wall. Uh, there are other ads that are kind of cringeworthy, and right. um, I mean, I have I don't know dozens, over a hundred of crazy hair ads. I could do a book just of you hair could. salon ads. Do you think about uh, doing it that way, or would that be too much organizational? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, structure. No, I, I like the way it's set up. I like the way that. Um, I like the way that it's this kind of stream of consciousness because yeah. uh, it, it would be pretty much impossible to be comprehensive. Like yeah. I, if I, I mean, what would I do? I mean, maybe I could pick a year or a month and yeah. I could do everything. I mean, it's just not possible. Yeah. And honestly, some of the ads are not very good. Right. They're not interesting. Uh, it's for, uh, I don't know, New England telephone and like, or yeah. it's, it's something stupid. So um, I try and pick stuff that I feel will in some way tell a story yeah. or uh, talk about an era or something. And, and then especially as things start to come together, it becomes like a puzzle. And it's like, oh, this piece would look really good next to that piece. Mm-hmm. And, oh, it fits, you know, so. Yeah, I think it works really well. And, and you know, I actually had an experience a little bit like the one I had reading Ryan Walsh's book about Van Morrison in Boston in 1968 and the experience that he described having when he was sort of unearthing all these details, kind of like what you're doing. When I was reading this book, I was starting to, or when I was flipping through this book, I guess I should say also reading it because there are words on every page. (laughs) I was starting to see these connections. Like you say, oh, in 1968, Hendrix played at this little venue that used to be in Boston. And then a couple months later, some, you know, Nina Simone or somebody else played. And so you start to have this image of somebody walking around this town 50 years ago. And it's really, it's pretty cool. And, and it's framed in a way that I've never really s- taken in history before. Yeah. You no, know? Ryan's book's amazing. I mean, it's, well, I'm uh, talking about now I'm talking about your book oh, too. I mean, well, his book, <laughs> his book is amazing as well. I love his book. Uh, and I interviewed him for the podcast too, but yep. I, what I'm saying is like, you take in this history of this time through your book, Buy Me Boston, that I, that I don't, think I've really taken in history before and I just enjoy the experience. Well, it, I know? think part of it and hopefully is in the way that I I made it so that it wasn't um, academic, it wasn't intimidating, it wasn't like uh, the thing about this book and honestly the thing about all of my books are there this happened I, I've told this story before uh, in other interviews but people at first somebody came up to me and offered me this compliment and they were trying to give it to me as the best compliment ever. And they were like, your book is like the ultimate bathroom book. And I was just like, I was about to punch him. I'm like, take that back, you son of a bitch. Right. And then I started thinking about it. I'm like, well, that's that's where a lot of people do very quality reading, yep. you know? It's true. Um, 
So I started to take it as more. Unfortunately, this, they do a lot of that on their phones these days. That's but true. This would be a better way that's to true. go for sure. But but you know, this book is actually the the even more so because yeah. it's not you're not reading anything. You're just kind of thumbing through. Right. And it is also not. The other books are okay. So if you want to go to the Beastie Boys, it's yeah. alphabetical by group. And this right. one, you're screwed. You know, unless yeah. you go to the index and like, where was that ad for the rat? Like, yeah. oh, good. So, so that, that was my, the bone I threw to people of of doing the index that, um, and honestly, I use it all the time myself. So I'm like, oh, you know, oh, where was that one ad? And I'll I'll go, oh oh, yeah, I did an index. Oh, that's good. I did that. What Um, was the thing that surprised you the most from putting this together or the thing you learned, uh, you didn't (laughs) expect to learn? I mean, I think it's just, um, to me, putting the book together is you start to really, appreciate entrepreneurs. Um, you, you appreciate each one of these, whether it's a band or a restaurant or a hair salon or anything. Um, everybody, there are very few millionaires taking out ads in, in these publications. Um, Legal Seafood, there's the early, early ad, and that's not even the earliest. I think they started in the late 60s, but there's an ad from, I think, 74, Legal Seafood, when they had one uh, humble location in Inman Square. Mm-hmm. And now, obviously, they're a big deal. Yeah. Um, but back then, they were not. So, um, and their ads are very homespun. There's hand drawn, you know, mm-hmm. and it's basically like, you know, farm to table kind of way before right. that was a thing and yeah. freshest seafood right on your plate. Um, so, but back then, they were scrapping like everybody else. Yeah. You know, they weren't any better than any other restaurant out there taking out an ad. So, mm-hmm. you start to appreciate that. Uh, a lot of these places are long gone and then some of them aren't. And then, so for me, I certainly appreciate the places that are still here right? Um, that have been around since the sixties, seventies, eighties, because it's not easy. It's yeah. actually almost impossible to mm-hmm. uh, stay in business, whether that's a band yet again. Yeah. I think a lot of people forget that bands and visual artists and painters and et cetera, et cetera, are businesses. They are mom and pops. They are entrepreneurs just the same way that that food truck on the corner is, you know? Mm -hmm. And so everyone's trying to make their mark and trying to make a little rent money and and all of that. And I think that's overall what the book is really about, is about Bostonians um, expressing themselves, sometimes poetically and Mm -hmm. deeply artistically, sometimes just throw up, you know, put the ad up, right. who's playing Thursday. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I really don't care. Right. Just put it up there. And it looks like it. I, but it's like, I have more important things to do than right. worry about if someone's drawing my ad. Yeah. Yet again, someone else who owns a club is like, my daughter's a really great artist. So maybe I'll have her draw something. And so right. great. And so it's, it's kind of anything goes and it's really, um, clearly there's no, uh, there's no right way to do any of this stuff. So the most important, and so then you look at certain places that have been around forever and it's like, well, clearly no one was, uh, has been around forever just because they had great ads in the Boston Phoenix. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot going into it, but, and some of the cooler places are long gone. The N square men's bar, they had really cool ads, but what good did that do them? They right. didn't last forever. So yeah. you can debate all kinds of stuff like that. You just mentioned people who put some time into one of their ads. So I want to just get your take on one more of these and sure. then, and then kind of move toward wrapping up with a question about interviewing. But, uh, 
Jerry Valley's musical oh. band. This is another one that made me laugh out loud. Man, I love that ad. Yeah, me and that too. could be a hair salon ad too. No I kidding. guess except for the ball guy, but I mean, they have this like awkwardly longish side parted dark hair and mustaches. Almost every single one. They all look like Sony Sonny uh, Bono. They, well, two of them I thought were the same guy. Those two yeah. with the microphones there. <laughs> I mean, you'll have me. You'll I can send you the image. You can put it up in the podcast. That'd be if cool. You want. Um, it, this is basically a, a really horrible photoshop job done years before there was photoshop right physically i don't think it'd be possible they're basically they look like they're uh, leaves on a plant they're coming (laughs) out of a like some kind of a weird place they're different sizes and it's these guys who are what are there six of them right and jerry valley was a legit i mean he had a career you know he was a, a known guy around town um, that was from this magazine called Nightlife that had mm-hmm. some of the most amazing ads. Yeah. Uh, and by amazing, I mean horrible and and ugly and crazy <laughs> and done by lunatics. And, and that's why I we love them. them. Yeah. And I love them. So yeah, yeah that one's, that's a good one. That's, yeah. uh, I don't know who put it together. I right. wish I could shake their hand and yeah. uh, figure that out. It's a treasure trove. It uh, is. So the w- one thing that we you don't really have a whole lot of time to talk about today are, are those three collections of hip hop liner notes that you mm-hmm. put together and you interviewed a lot of people for those and you in- interviewed a lot of people in much earlier because you wrote for hip hop magazines and other mm-hmm. national magazines for quite a long time yep. uh, about about hip hop about about music. Um, so I'm just wondering about your approach to interviews because you've obviously done them a whole lot and 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 you probably um, you know you were interviewing people who maybe hadn't done a whole lot of interviews. I'm not really sure or or maybe not for the purpose that you were you were trying yes. to really unpack exactly what happened on these albums. Yep for those three books. So what was your approach to doing those interviews, either even if, the, if they happened back in the day or more recently? Uh, how did you make them work? Uh, you know, what are some of the keys to you succeeding and getting what you needed? Um, I mean, I think the key for me, what I tried to do um, is to talk to each one of the artists, uh, not interview them as their persona on record, but mm-hmm. to interview them as a person. Yeah. So Ice-T... I wasn't talking to Ice T, the guy holding the gun, and and you know talking about all kinds of stuff like that. I mean, if you really look at Ice T, he's actually not a gangster rapper, even though a lot of people might think he was in the same way that Bill O'Reilly thought that Ludacris was somehow a gangster rapper, right. which was quite laughable. But um, but it was more like I'm talking to Tracy Marrow, uh, who is the person who is Ice T on stage, mm-hmm. and and kind of about their process of creating of. Uh, what were you like as a kid? You know, that's one of my favorite things to start off with. Mm-hmm. Um, and to make it, you know, to to go into places that they might not normally talk about. I mean, yeah. it's not like uh, they, when you're doing, you've, you, you know how this goes probably, but I've seen it in action and it's crazy, of media day. Mm-hmm. So the artist is in a hotel suite and they probably do, I don't know, anywhere from 20 to 50 interviews in mm-hmm. a row, mm-hmm. you're not going to really get, by the inter- 30th interview, you're not really getting a, a ton out of them. No. So um, so I never talk to people on media days. Mm-hmm. That was That's my number one rule. Yeah. Um, and I don't really have to because a lot of them aren't doing these massive tours. Uh, some of them are still, you know, sizable artists touring mm-hmm. all over the world, et cetera, et cetera. But um, my thing was just to really dive deep and just kind of, 
get to not be fanboy about it Mm -hmm. and to treat them with respect as artists. And like, I want to know what it was like for you to create this, Mm -hmm. you know, and not uh, for me to say what the album meant to me, but like, okay, so you Mm -hmm. talk, you know? And and I think a lot of times the, uh, the artists seem to appreciate that when, it's not the sensationalistic, like, let me talk about this beef you had with this guy and all that crap. Yeah. Because uh, I've never cared about that. And I don't now and I didn't back then. Um, sometimes those incidents help those guys' careers. So it's not like they were uh, inconsequential, but that's not what I'm interested right. in. So, so my whole thing was more, what was it like when you first started out? I mean, were you the first time you wrote a rap, was it hard to do or, you mm-hmm. know, like very elemental type stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think they, they appreciate that because most people don't ask them questions like that. Yeah. Um, in this day and age, it's kind of interesting now that podcasts have taken off so much that they actually are getting a chance to dive deeper. Some mm-hmm. of these artists are really doing that. But yeah. back when I started, the first book came out in 2005 and the first interviews I was doing along those lines were back in like the late 90s mm-hmm. when take someone like Schooly D, there, people weren't breaking down his door to, um, not that he was nobody, because to me, he's a superstar and he mm-hmm. was still making music, but um that was a, an amazing chance for me to talk to someone about something very important, mm-hmm. which are his fir- his earlier years and his first couple. Yeah. And the interview I did, it's not like it changed their life or their career or anything, mm-hmm. but it did, um, I think for fans, it helped uh, to uh, give another view of, of these artists. That Schooly D is a great example of not talking to the onstage persona, yeah. but it was like, okay, Puts, I don't want to talk to Schooly D. I want to talk to Jesse B. Weaver Jr. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the way I generally gotcha. approach it. I mean, I, hip-hop is unique in that way in that there aren't that many rock. I mean, I guess maybe, I don't know who, Lady Gaga, you could say. I don't want to talk to Lady Gaga. Let's talk to the, you know, the person who's not all that other stuff. But right. hip-hop is certainly unique in the personas and the mm-hmm. stage versus offstage kind of thing. And so that that is an interesting... Um, kind of path to to go to navigate at yeah. first it's it's it was something that was not easy to do yeah because they probably don't want to reveal the person behind the persona in some no, cases I think, they, I think they do especially yeah. keep in mind when i'm talking to these artists they've already established themselves right. decades ago mm-hmm. so they don't they're not worried about being exposed gotcha. or whatever they've already established themselves as as hit makers yeah. and artists and this persona or that person. I mean, Cool Keith, how many personas has Cool Keith had? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the kind of great thing about it is, is you're freed from, uh, right when an album's coming out, you are not going to get that much truth about what was going on. But 20 years later, what do they care? Mm-hmm. Like that's already, that's their classic and it's, it's way in the past. So yeah, so I'll talk about all the stuff. All my manager was robbing me blind, yeah. and, and this and that. Um, so yeah, so it, it's it was a pretty amazing journey. I mean, it's not over for me. I'm not. Right. I haven't retired from that, but yeah. um, I did want to with this book. I did want to with Buy Me Boston. I wanted to take a little bit of a a, a, a detour and, mm-hmm. and kind of do some honestly do something for Boston. Yeah, you know, um, to uh, explore because I think it is it it didn't. It didn't start out that way, but right. now um, with, you know, Ryan's book 
Um, Charles Giuliano is working mm-hmm. on a book that really? is going to be absolutely amazing. He's the guy who was uh, the publisher of Avatar and other alternative newspapers back in the I mean, day. He or? goes way back, Boston After Dark. He was a, yeah. a main major guy in Boston After Dark and throughout um, as a visual art critic as much as a music critic. Yeah. Um, I think his actual training is in visual art. Yeah. Um, hugely important guy and so i've been i talked to him recently and he's working on a book too there's the wbcn uh documentary Mm -hmm. the movies coming out looking forward to that that is i saw an early i was very fortunate uh to see an early cut of it and it's absolutely amazing because yet again there's this swirl of stuff going on around that era because Mm -hmm. i think this kind of goes back to my hip-hop books which is um and people would ask me all the time when I was doing interviews for those books is how do you like, who, so who put out an album last year that, that you think is going to be a classic? And I was like, ask me in 10 years. Like, yeah. I can't tell you who, I mean, I could tell you who I like, but I can't say that there's no such thing as an instant classic. Anyone right. who says that mm-hmm. is wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's just ridiculous. There's yeah. no such thing. Cause you have to go back five, 10, 20 years later and see did this hold up? Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh yeah, that, I thought that Aha record was really good when it came out, and <laughs> yeah. yeah, it didn't hold up. You know, the the extra non singles, I don't know, man. Um, didn't quite pan out that yeah, way. Yeah, I shouldn't have got that Aha tattoo, man. I don't know, man. I'm kind of embarrassed. So, 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 anyways, it's uh, it's great. There's an incredible, and I think it's only beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, um, with all all this stuff. So, uh, I'm just honored to be a yeah. part of you know, in the mix there somewhere. And, uh, I've gotten to know so many amazing people along this journey and I keep meeting more and more all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, a very, very sad thing. Asa Brebner just Mm -hmm. passed away. Great Boston musician. And, um, I had meant, I was looking back and I have, you know, emails with him saying, Mm -hmm. I got to, he's like, you got to come over, man. I got Mm -hmm. a bunch of stuff to give you. And he was really, uh, very kind about, uh, what he thought of the book and he wanted to be, you know, contribute to the next one. And I was mm-hmm. like, Oh yeah, that would be incredible. I'd love to. Um, and you know, he's, he's gone now. Yeah. So, um, so that's the final thing I think is just making sure to appreciate people while they're here and to not wait too long. If you want to ask somebody something, or if you want to do an interview, uh, don't put it off. Cause, cause a lot of times um, people who are not 90 years old, pass on so so uh, and and you have to appreciate them i like what you're saying about uh you know you're just giving advice to people who might be thinking about archiving material or interviewing somebody because that was a sort of a a way i was going to end this and ask a question about and you started to answer but what sort of advice you would have for anybody who's thinking about doing a project anywhere from like what you what you've done here which is massive uh with uh by me boston to anything else where they're just sort of holding on to family material or wanting to interview a relative, what kind of advice do you have for anybody who's thinking of doing some archiving? Well, as I've proven throughout my career, you don't have to know what you're doing to do any of this stuff. I wasn't trained as a writer. I wasn't trained as a journalist. Um, I just kind of picked it up almost as a hobby. I mean, when I was writing in the nineties, I was moonlighting. I I had a day gig, so it wasn't like I was paying my rent by that. Um, so I would say the thing is that the beauty now is that a lot of my favorite archives, quote unquote, are actually on Instagram, Mm -hmm. you know, so, uh, Pete Nice from third base actually has this amazing Instagram page. That's one of the best ones out there and is actually better than most, 
um, other archives, at least online, mm-hmm. um, called Rushtown 298. So um, you don't have to actually have a physical archive to archive things. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the, the web, uh, for all its uh, shortcomings, which are many, um, online, Instagram, Facebook, et cetera, is a great way to share things without letting people into your home, you know, and, and letting them paw through your stuff, you mm-hmm. know? So after eating a bag of Cheetos, you know, like it's, it's, <laughs> it's, you know, so, so that's one great thing. And I think, um, certainly the one thing that I have learned and that, that I've proven is that, um, you don't have to be an expert in order to do any interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to be professional and respectful. So that's really all it requires. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other advice I would give is if you want to talk to someone for 45 minutes, ask them for 15. <laughs> yeah. That's the best advice yeah. I can give yeah. is that, because if you say, I want to talk to you for an hour and a half, is that all right? Then no, very few people no. are going to say, oh, that, right. that sounds great. And if it goes well enough, then you'll talk to them for an hour and a half, as I've done many times. I know. You only agreed to talk to me for five minutes. <laughs> there you look go. At us. Like, what are you still doing in my house? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, so, but that's the beauty of it is that certainly now, um, anyone on your iPhone, you can do an interview yeah. and, um, don't, don't wait. Like if there's something you want to do, um, you don't have to have an assignment, you know, from a publication to do it. You yeah. can write it up on your own and mm-hmm. on Publish any page too. you want yeah. and put it out. Um, and I would say generally to talk to people, especially people who aren't, you know, you don't think you're going to be around forever. Talk mm-hmm. to them sooner than later because yeah. you just never know and you'll be glad so every time i i try uh, when i remember to if i'm having a really good conversation with someone i'm like oh man like i gotta record this hold on hold on yeah. you know and just say do you mind if i run this and, right um, even if i don't do anything with it for two years at mm-hmm. least i have it um so yeah but i think generally that that uh famous people it's not easy. You have right. to work your way through a whole labyrinth um, of trying to get. To, if you want to talk to Will Smith, mm-hmm. it's going to take you a while. It's yeah. not going to be easy. But <laughs> if you want to, uh, you'd be kind of surprised. I think a lot of times, if you mm-hmm. present yourself in a professional way and you and you're respectful, that that I think a lot of times, more than uh, not, it, it works out. Well, Brian Coleman, thank you for the time today. Congratulations on the book, Buy Me Boston. Whether thank or you. not you're a Bostonian, this book is really cool to check it out. Uh, to check out. So thanks for the book. Thanks for the time today. And we'll talk to you again soon. I appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. Learn more about Brian Coleman's work at goodroad.net. That's good-road.net. And if you're in Boston on April 11th, go to the Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline, Mass., for his Buy Me Boston video loft. Trust me now, I saw some of the clips he'll show, classic footage of bands and musicians and old commercials, all on the big screen. Fun times. This episode was edited and mixed by Isaac Kotecki. Matt Jensen composed and recorded the theme music. Subscribe to the Media Narrative Podcast and newsletter at themedianarrative.com. I'm Rob. Thank you so much for listening.